Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 207. My name is Terry Frost, and this time around we're doing the second of the Femme Fatale episodes of the podcast for February 2017. And we're doing classics. The two classics we're doing are from 1950 Sunset Boulevard, directed excellently by Billy Wilder and starring Gloria Swanson and William Holden. Then we go forward to 1981 for a neo-noir which is Body Heat, Lawrence Kasdan's Body Heat, starring William Hurt and Kathleen Turner, and also Ted Danson. So sit back, we'll go from Sunset Boulevard to the steamy coast of Florida, and look at a couple more examples of murderous and deceptive women. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic movie appreciation. The only rule we have is that the movies have to be more than 20 years old. Uh, feedback's important to podcasters, so if you'd like to leave reviews on iTunes, they'd be very welcome. You can also send voicemails or emails to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com or go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. You can even friend me up on Facebook as long as you're nice and civil and don't spit on the carpet. Just be aware that the podcast does have adult themes at times, so just be aware of that. Anyway, I'll get on with the show now, and um, I hope you enjoy it. How are you all? Um, the weather's gone weird on me. It really has. Uh, a bit over a week ago, it was 38 degrees and humid in Sydney. And now here I am back in Melbourne and it's 14 degrees and not humid at all. And so I'm rugged up with um, a jumper on. Uh, I've got my coffee. I've got a little oil burner next to me. And I'm just hoping I don't die of hypothermia in the next hour or so until at least uh, until I get the podcast completed. Uh, yeah, so what's been happening? Not too much. It's the second week of my fortnight off. So uh, I kind of took things easy. I uh, just cruised around, picked up a few movies, watched a few movies, and in general just kind of chilled out the way you do when you're about to go back to work for another year of fun and games. So what have I been watching? Actually, not too much. I've been doing a couple of other things I'll talk about in a moment. But I did see Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, the kind of Harry Potter spin-off with Eddie Redmayne and a whole bunch of uh, CG monsters set in 1920s New York. Yeah, it was okay. I mean, I wasn't thoroughly impressed. Yeah, the CG, of course, and, and the monster creation was a lot of fun. But, um, yeah, uh, yeah, so-so, as far as I'm concerned. It really um, didn't grab me as much as it has, clearly, some other people, particularly die-hard Harry Potter fans. See it if you want to, but for me, yeah, mezzo e mezzo. Uh, and I also saw a recent science fiction movie from 2016, another AI movie. I'm going to do AI as one of the themes for Martian Drive-In podcast this year. So I thought I should cover the waterfront. And so just dropped something. Uh, yeah, I'm going to do a movie called Morgan, which uh, stars Kate Mara, uh, it's also got Toby Jones in it. It's got Paul Giamatti. And it's about um, an artificially created human being using artificial DNA and nanotechnology who resembles a young girl. Uh, she's in a facility where they've um, created her. 
and she's just poked the eye out of one of the, her minders. And so an investigator comes in from the parent company to see what's going on and what should be done about it. And then shit gets all kind of fucked up. Uh, yeah, I've, I've seen things like this a little bit before. It's it's kind of a little bit derivative. Acting is very good. I'll, I'll give it that. The acting is very good in it. But um, it's, yeah, it, it's no better than it should be. It was made in a fairly small budget, which is a consideration, of course. Nonetheless, I picked the twist about mm, 10 minutes into the movie which was kind of disappointing. But nonetheless, uh, if you're interested in that kind of film or in the careers of Paul Giamatti, Toby Jones um, and Paul and um, Kate Mara and uh, a few other people in there, Jennifer Jason Lee has a little bit of a role as well. But uh, yeah, I was, I was slightly disappointed with that one. Uh, the other thing I did was I rewatched La La Land with Sally, which was a mistake because having somebody who doesn't like a film like La La Land sit there with you while you're re-watching it. Now, I was re-watching it so that I could uh, review it for the ABC Darwin um, radio gig with uh, Rebecca McLaren. Rebecca and I love the movie, by the way. Uh, but watching it with somebody going, oh, this is stupid, what's this happening for? All the way through it. Um, it kind of spoiled it the second time around for me. I do like the movie. I am going to get it on Blu-ray when it comes out. But um, it's an interesting film in that it does polarise audiences. People either love it outrageously or they hate it. Don't know why. They're a little bit the way they feel about me when they meet me. You either love me immediately or you hate me. Nonetheless, um, yeah, I I do appreciate the film. There were little bits and pieces I missed the first time around, which I saw the second time, so it was worth reviewing before I reviewed it. But next time, I'm not going to watch it with Sally. Yeah, she doesn't like it. Uh, And if you're watching a movie that you really appreciate and you really like, sitting there with somebody who doesn't drains the energy from you, as far as the movie's concerned. And I think that was the problem that time around. But outside of movies, we had a couple of wins. Uh, There's a couple of things that have happened to um, help us with some long ongoing issues regarding um sales health which is good there have been some upturns in a couple of regards on that i won't go into too many details but it's a good time in some ways the other thing i've done is i've picked up some software so that i can kind of work on a paleo cinema podcast youtube page and maybe put up a bit of content there uh, i picked up some software called corel video studio 10 And I'm teaching myself to use it. So basically, I'm teaching myself to do intros for videos, to um, narrate them, and to put in some uh, graphics and and visuals and movie clips and things together. I'm on a learning curve with it, which is great. I mean, actually, I love the learning curve of this because you've got to keep learning things. Now, I'm coming up on a big birthday later this year. And if you want to send presents, please let me know. And um, having said that, you kind of get aware as you reach certain milestone birthdays that you've got to keep your brain agile. And so learning how to do video editing with uh, video editing software is one of my projects to do that. Of course, the other side of it too is that I learned to do video editing, which is kind of cool. Uh, so I'm, I'm playing with that. I only got it a couple of days ago. I downloaded it. It did cost me a, a hundred bucks. Well spent as far as I'm concerned. I've already done an intro piece. And then I'm going to um, play around with the content over the next few weeks and upload the first cool paleo cinema 
video. I may do some for Martian Driving Podcast too, but I'm not going to split my attention. And I'm going to do it for Paleo Cinema Podcast. It's going to be about the top five movies about movies. That's going to be the um, approach I'm going to take on the first one. Happy with the intro. Though there's just, you know, like the branding bit at the start and what the video is about. I've done that part already. But, um, yeah, it's a new project, a new adventure, and a new learning curve, which I love. And uh, I look forward to doing it. I'll post it up on Facebook and on um, Patreon and uh, anywhere else I can as well once the video is up and running. I'm hoping it'll go viral. I want at least two, three million hits on it. So spread the news when it does get up there. Uh, ideally, and, and this is something that may never happen. I really want to kind of build a community in YouTube as well as I do as far as the podcast is, is concerned. And it's a bit of fun. Uh, the downside is I lose a hundred bucks. That's all I can lose on this one, which is uh, just that uh, software cost. And you know, I'm going to I'm going to do it. I'm going to enjoy it. And um, being a film editor is kind of cool. I'm enjoying the new kind of creativity with that. You know, which clips do I pick? Which clips can I legally pick? Um, what bits and pieces can I do? How do I want to approach each of the um, the themes for the videos so you know there are all those kind of creative choices that i'm really grooving on at the moment so a little bit of fun a new venture and learning anyway it's time to talk about sunset boulevard i'll play part of the trailer for it in a moment but uh the best story i heard about sunset boulevard happened not in 1950 when the movie was made but in the year 2000 a <laughs> really cool story because as we all know uh andrew lloyd webber made a musical of sunset boulevard and uh at the premiere of it was billy wilder he was invited to the premiere he's an honored guest so they took him to the premiere to see the stage musical of sunset boulevard now as you know i'm not a fan of andrew lloyd webber so billy wilder was there the the plays the musical played on in the theater and then somebody says to Billy Wilder, what did you think of the musical of Sunset Boulevard? And he looked at the guy and said, it'll make a good movie. So that's, um, that's pretty much it for the musical of Sunset Boulevard. Hate Andrew Lloyd Webber. I think that the music doesn't work. I think it's bullshit. And it detracts from the movie. So the movie is the thing we're going to talk about. Really interesting stuff. Um, it, it's a movie about Hollywood. And as Wilder himself told Nancy Olsen, who plays the ingenue Betty, who's a screenwriter for one of the studios in the film, it's a movie about opportunism and the consequences of opportunism. So I'll play the trailer now. Hedda Hopper speaking. I'm talking from the bedroom of Norma Desmond. Don't bother with a rewrite, man. Take this direct. Ready? as day breaks over the murder house. Yes, you'll read the big black headlines about Norma Desmond and this Hollywood scandal. But you'll never read the true story about the rest of us who were part of it. Me, for instance, Joe Gillis, a promising young writer from Dayton, Ohio. And Betty, that nice kid I met at a Hollywood party who knew nothing about me, but knew what she wanted. Don't you love Artie? Of course I love him. I always will. I'm just not in love with him anymore. What happened? Who did? Well, we should have lived happily ever after, like they do in the movies. 
But this was different, because this is a Hollywood story about the people who make the movies. The little ones that you never hear of, like Betty and me. The great ones, like Cecil B. DeMille. All those who knew Norma Desmond, a strange woman who left her mark on all of us, who crossed her path. Has it ever occurred to you that I may have a life of my own, that there, there may be some girl that I'm crazy about? Who? Some car hop or dress extra? What I'm trying to say is that I'm all wrong for you. You want a Valentino, somebody with polo ponies, a big shot. What you're trying to say is you don't want me to love you. Say it. Say it. Gloria Swanson, one of the great personalities of this generation in a role that comes to an actress once in a lifetime. Rising to the heights, William Holden creates a startling portrayal. And a new star is born in Sunset Boulevard, Miss Nancy Olson. Joe? Where are you? What's this all about? Why don't you come out and see for yourself? The address is 10,086 Sunset Boulevard. Yes, come out to see for yourself the film that reaches a new milestone of dramatic daring. The film that every critic says is a giant among motion pictures. I hadn't seen Sunset Boulevard for a number of years before I watched it yesterday for the podcast. And one of the things I've forgotten about it is how really entertaining it is. The dialogue is very, very sharp in this film, of course, being by Wilder and Charles Brackett, how could it not be? But um, I really like it. I like the frame around it, the fact that uh, the dead man is narrating it. We know that Joe Gillis ends up face down in Gloria Swanson's swimming pool as Harlan Ellison once phrased it. And, um, yeah, it, it kind of works. There wasn't, of course, a different beginning for the movie originally, which didn't play well with the uh, focus groups. They they got to review the movie before it was released. And that was seven people in a morgue, dead people, uh, one of whom is William Holden's character, and they all talk about the way they died. And then William Holden's character, Joe Gillis, tells the story of Norma Desmond and the house and all the rest of it. The problem was that when they played that before the um, preview audience, they all laughed at the wrong parts. It was the wrong start for the film. So Wilder and Brackett rethought it and came up with the beginning that we see in the film, the, the face down in the swimming pool stuff, which was difficult for them to film as well because there's a beautiful shot looking up from the bottom of the pool uh, over William Holden's floating corpse to the cops and the and the photographers who were above the, the pool and on the side of the pool. They couldn't really film it from underwater. The cameras to do that didn't exist at the time. But So what they did was they put a mirror at the bottom of the pool and at about 40 degrees, the focus was uh, water temperature of about 40 degrees Fahrenheit. They could focus through the water and reflect up again to the... Um, to William Holden and, and to the uh, people playing the cops and things like that really effectively. So that's how they did it. And it's a very effective shot. As somebody said, normally Billy Wilder's shots don't draw attention to themselves. But in this case, it was kind of appropriate that it did. It's a really good shot and it's an iconic shot as well. So by the way, I've, I've done my homework on this one because I've got a book called Nobody's Perfect Billy Wilder, a personal biography by Charlotte Chandler which basically is a compilation of interviews with Wilder and the other people involved in his films. 
and uh, there's some really good stuff in this. Uh, Franz Waxman did the music, by the way. There's a, a kind of over-the-top Franz Waxman dramatic score in this one. And Waxman and Wilder went back to the old days at Ufer in Germany in the 1920s. And Billy Wilder and Franz Waxman used to go out to nightclubs, as you do in Germany in the 1920s. And Billy Wilder was Franz Waxman's beard. So that when Franz Waxman, who was married at the time, wanted to take his girlfriend out to a nightclub, they took Billy Wilder along because Billy would then pretend to be the boyfriend in the kind of same way that happens in that uh, scene in Sweet Smell of Success, where this one is toting around this one for this one. So <laughs> Billy Wilder and Franz Waxman really did have a, a long collaboration in uh, cinema, which is kind of cool. Now, I'm going to read the praise from Charlotte Chandler's book because it's kind of succinct and says things exactly the way they should be said about this movie. Um, Joe Gillis, William Holden, is an unsuccessful screenplay writer. He escapes the finance men who are trying to reclaim his car by driving into the garage of an old mansion on Sunset Boulevard. Assumed to be someone else, he is led by Max the butler, Eric von Stroheim, to the mansion's owner, silent film star Norma Desmond, Gloria Swanson. Wishing to make a comeback, she hires him to rewrite her Salome script, then falls in love with him and he moves into the mansion as a kept man. Joe collaborates with a pretty young screenwriting editor, Betty Schaefer, Nancy Olsen, on another idea he has for a movie. Though she's engaged to his best friend, Artie Green, Jack Webb, Betty falls in love with Joe. When Betty finds out about Norma, she asks him to leave Norma for her, but Joe can't unsettle his life. So I'm not going to go any further than that into that. But that kind of covers it. The actors work really, really well. Originally, Montgomery Clift was going to play Joe Gillis. But he, he thought about it and decided that it wasn't for him. It would mess with his image too much, so he didn't really want to play it. And William Holden came in at the last minute. Now, Holden was about a decade after his big breakthrough success in a movie called Golden Boy that he did with Barbara Stanwyck. And he was kind of a jobbing actor around. He was playing the husband in comedies and things like that. But this is the movie that kind of relaunched his career after a decade of not too much happening. And Holden is fantastic in it. He's, um, of course, he's a very good-looking guy at the time and very fit. But he was charming and witty. And he's an, he was an intelligent actor, too, with a certain kind of vulnerability about him. He's kind of like Mitchum. Mitchum and Holden both played kind of macho actors but you could always sense the underlying kind of sensitivity to them which makes them play very well to a modern audience uh, whereas macho dickheads like john wayne don't play as well uh, uh a kind of masculine good-looking man to play well in movies has to have that vulnerability They're really it's an essential part and also both mitchum and um william holden were intelligent actors now then, we, of course, we have Gloria Swanson. They were originally going to go with the old school. They wanted an old school silent film star or old school film star to play Norma Desmond. Originally, they were going to go with Paula Negri, who was a silent film star, and she was living out somewhere in the desert in a retirement home. And uh, her thick Hungarian accent kind of precluded her from doing that. But she was one of those film stars from the silent era who didn't translate well to sound because of her accent. Then they were looking at Mary Pickford, and the only thing Wilder said about um, talking to Mary Pickford, who was a big silent film star, of course married to Douglas Fairbanks Sr., 
was that it was a disaster. Really wouldn't work. And then um, Wilder was talking to the director, George Cukor, about this, and Cukor said, why not Gloria Swanson? She's the only person for the role. And, of course, they went to Gloria Swanson, who was, cur- who was at the time being kept by Joseph Kennedy, the father of JFK. They'd had a long affair. In fact, Joseph Kennedy bankrolled um, Swanson's last really big film, Queen Kelly, which uh, a clip from it appears in Sunset Boulevard. She agreed to do the role and kind of made it work. Uh, it really is an eerie, creepy, vulnerable, crazy role for a woman. Now, one of the touchstones for this film, one of the things you can compare it to in some ways is when uh, Joe Gillis originally sees the house and goes up to the house because he's hiding his car in the garage, gets a flat tyre, drives into this driveway and ends up in a nightmare, <laughs> ultimately. He compares the house to Miss Havisham in Great Expectations. You know, it reminded him of Miss Havisham, which tells us a couple of things. First off, that the house and, of course, the owner of the house is in a state of decay. And there are some parallels between Norma Desmond and Miss Havisham, which are worth noting as well. I'll leave that as an exercise for the listener. The other thing it shows is that Joe Gillis is an educated man. He um, knows Great Expectations. He knows Miss Havisham. And so we just with that one little line of dialogue, we learn a little bit more about this guy. He is one of those, um, you know, he's not a successful screenwriter. We see him earlier with uh, a producer at Paramount called Sheldrake, played really well by Fred Clark, who we know from any number of things. And uh, Fred Clark's Sheldrake gets some really good bits of dialogue. He name drops Tyrone Power and Alan Ladd and William Demarest. And um, Sheldrake's kind of on the outer with the studio because he's the guy that turned down Gone with the Wind saying nobody wanted to see a movie about the Civil War. So he, um, he's kind of like a, a B or C producer at the studio now because of that. And it's quite a funny bit of dialogue. Um, now, Joe Gillis is pitching him a movie about baseball. And um, he kind of says, well, you know, we need a Betty Hutton film. Can we do it about a women's baseball team and put in some songs and things? And Joe Gillis says no, he, he, yeah, he rejects the idea, which is probably the first point at which things fuck up for him because um, if he really wanted to get the film made, he would have said, yeah, we'll make it as a Betty Hutton film. We'll put songs in it. But he wants to stay true to his material. And in doing so, um, Sheldrake just says, no, I've got nothing for you at the moment, mate. I can't lend you the money for your car and, and for your debts. But... Um, yeah, and then he goes to his. There's a brief scene with him with Joe and his agent, and his agent basically brushes him off as well. So he's definitely on his uppers. He's wearing um, a sports jacket with patches in the elbows, with a polo shirt under it, and mismatched trousers. His shoes have probably got holes in them as well. So, uh, and also the interesting thing I noticed, and it's just a little detail, but it's one that I found quite telling is um, William Holden had a cheap haircut at the start of Sunset Boulevard, which is one of those details you don't tend to notice very much. But when you do, you go, okay, well, they actually paid attention to this. As things progress, his haircuts get better because, of course, he's being kept by Norma Desmond. And the other person, there are two more people kind of in the... um, quadrangle of um, romance entanglements uh, one of them is Betty the um, studio writer editor 
played by Nancy Olsen, who's still around. She's 88 years old, but she's still around, and she um, kind of... Uh, there, there's some extras on the Blu-ray that I've got of Sunset Boulevard, and one of them is interviews with Nancy Olsen, who's a very perceptive, charming, and intelligent woman. I don't know whether, you know, at 88, she's as perceptive and charming and intelligent as she perhaps once was, but nonetheless, when they interviewed her, she does have some interesting things to say about it. Uh, she knew it was an on-jury role, She'd been to college. She'd done a movie before this, and um, this movie came along, and Wilder helped her a lot. He, he just told her what the role was, and the role was partly based on Wilder's wife, Audrey. Audrey was much more sophisticated than Betty, but uh, Audrey grew up around Hollywood the way the character of Betty did, and so Wilder you know, brought a bit of his wife to the character, and, of course, that helps flesh out the character as well. And Nancy Olsen is very good. She's intelligent. She's passionate about writing. She's the part of the world that Joe Gillis gives up in order to be a kept man and to take the easy path, in some ways the easy path, by being a kept man for Norma Desmond. The other person in the quadrangle is Max, the butler of Norma Desmond, played by Eric von Stroheim. Now, von Stroheim was a film director in the silent era, he did two movies in particular with um, Gloria Swanson back in the 20s. One called Greed, which was an insane endeavour. It was hours and hours long. It really was a balls-up of a movie. And then another movie called Queen Kelly, which basically fucked up because Von Stroheim was clinically insane at the time. But he, he kind of came around for it. He, his career in Hollywood was over as a director. But in this film in particular... Um, Wilder brought him back because of his history with Gloria Swanson. And he is very good as Max the Butler. There's um, moments of, of vulnerability uh, and kind of character building that Von Stroheim brings to Max that I found quite interesting as well. And there's that weird codependent relationship between Max and Norma Desmond, which is kind of creepy. That, uh, he's an enabler of her and she keeps him around because she needs him. And we find out more about Max later. There is some backstory to Max that he tells Joe Gillis during the film. And all of that backstory about Max came from Von Stroheim. He suggested it to Billy Wilder. And Wilder had an immense respect for Von Stroheim's visual um, imagination and his, his ability to bring little telling points to the movies he did in the silent era. And so Wilder listened to Von Stroheim about those particular parts of the character and adopted them. He agreed to them, and they really do flesh out the movie and kind of make wider in our minds the relationship between Max and Norma Desmond. At the time the movie was made, um, Gloria Swanson was 50. Now, 50 in 1950 was very different from 50 in 2017. She was the same age that actresses of, of current era, like Nicole Kimmon, Pamela Anderson, Emily Watson, um, Carrie-Anne Moss, and Julia Roberts are. So she's not old in, in from our modern viewpoint, but at the time, 50 was the new 80. And um, the, there was perceived a disconnect between silent era acting and sound era acting. So people well, the public at least, had this perception that if somebody in, in 1950 audiences we're talking about, um, 
you know, as if somebody was known as a silent film actor, there was a subconscious perception that they were 70 or 80 years old. But Gloria Swanson was only 50. She had a career. People said that, um, you know, she hadn't made movies for a couple of years. She hadn't made any for eight years. But she had a radio show in New York. She did theatre as well. She, she had a career that was ongoing at the time this film came out. It just wasn't in cinema. So she kept herself busy, lived a very long life, um, and, of course, it turned up in things like Airport 77 as Gloria Swanson. But, uh, yeah, she, she did um, keep the creative stuff going. And at the time this movie came out, um, she was only 50, which is, which is nothing these days. But at the time, it was a death knell for an actor. And the she does it very well. Uh, the, it can be seen as a very mannered role, her um, Norma Desmond. But it's mannered for a reason. She's a silent film actor who's living the dream of you know, a comeback and, and of um, her fame continuing, which is partly um, enabled by Max's actions. But uh, she's got big theatrical gestures of a silent film actor. Uh, she expresses things with her arms and her body and her face. She's created this weird hermetically sealed world for herself with Max and the friends who come over and play bridge with her, uh, which which is interesting too because they're played by silent film actors. Of course, there's Buster Keaton there, Anna Q. Massey, H.B. Warner, who played Christ in Cecil B. DeMille's um, version of King of Kings in 1927. Uh, 25 years later, he does seem very, very old. He did a few films after this. One of which, his last film was Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, the um, Cecil B. DeMille Ten Commandments, which is kind of cool. Then, of course, we also get Cecil B. DeMille in the film, playing Cecil B. DeMille, who uh, worked with the fictional Norma Desmond in a bunch of films back in the day. And Cecil B. DeMille was actually filmed on the set of Samson and Delilah that he was making at the time. He did three days' work on the film. And uh, DeMille, you see, you see a little bit of DeMille's kind of work there. The fact that he's got a microphone that he talks to people in the studio with. Uh, then there's a nice little telling scene where Norma Desmond is sitting in the studio where DeMille's filming uh, Samson and Delilah. And she's got a big hat with a feather on it. And a boom mic brushes against the feather and kind of disturbs her. And she glares at the boom mic because, of course, that represents sound. The, you know, the kind of film she doesn't like. She doesn't like sound films. She thinks that people should have stayed with silent films. And um, that's kind of where her mind is stuck. And uh, DeMille greets her, cur- greets her courteously and um, talks to her gently. She's submitted to the studio a, a screenplay which Joe Gillis has tried to adapt for Salome, but it's a, it's a shit screenplay. It's um, dated, it's bombastic, it kind of doesn't have any characters in it particularly besides Salome, which um, Norma Desmond wants to play. Uh, And even though Gillis does suggest uh, modifications to make it a much more marketable screenplay, she rejects them because she's living in a fantasy world. There's a weirdness to Norma Desmond, the, the fact that she hears something from somebody like DeMille who's trying to be kind and trying to brush her off kindly. And here's something he never said about them making her Salome. And we kind of then see the depth of her self-delusion 
and her inability to see anything contrary to what she believes. She's um, a very fucked up character and there are no locks on the house because she can't lock herself away because, as Max said, she's prone to moments of melancholy, which of course means that she's depressed and suicidal. In fact, she does have a suicide attempt on New Year's Eve when Joe escapes from the house to go to a party where he sees Betty and Artie and um, you know, starts having a good time with people his own age and people uh, in the industry who aren't 30 years out of the industry and hiding in gruesome old mansions. And that kind of sucks Joe back into her orbit when, he, when he's trying to make an attempt to escape. And there's also that perception that we get that the suicide attempts aren't really suicide attempts. They're attempts at manipulating people around her, whether it's Max or whether it's Joe. Um, she, they're, they're kind of cries for help rather than um, genuine suicide attempts. And that then brings us into, of course, the, the mental health issue of the film as well. Uh, mental health is seen as a very different thing in 1950 as it, uh, than it is now. And you've got to also remember that Norma Desmond's head is stuck in the mid-1920s. So psychiatry wasn't approved of medication for depression and illnesses therapy of various kinds as something she because she's wealthy she doesn't have to have she can have her delusions and her illness indulged because of her wealth because of her isolation and because she's enabled by max who is her ex-husband and her ex-director and who looks after her because he loves her and in a fucked up, very fucked up way, of course. Joe sees this, but he's unable to get away from the comforts of being a kept man with gold cigarette cases and a whole bunch of suits and not really needing to do anything except be trapped by this woman who is keeping him. And um, then, of course, that brings up the argument uh, based on the theme of the podcast for this month. Is Norma Debson really a femme fatale? She does kill him in the end, of course, which is not a spoiler because it's right at the start of the film. Nonetheless, um, she, she is a femme fatale in, in a kind of passive-aggressive way. And she, even though... And, and yeah, she does have a lot of the tropes of a femme fatale in that uh, a weak man is brought into her orbit and is manipulated by her, and ultimately um, it doesn't end well for him. So in that sense, she's very much a femme fatale. In another sense, she's a mentally ill person that doesn't get the care that she needs. And that brings up other aspects of the film. It's just an interesting movie for a lot of ways. And one, the other thing about it that I've forgotten uh, is that it's very mordantly funny. There are some very funny lines of dialogue in there some little bits of business and some you know, jokes and and that kind of wryly, cynically bitchy Billy Wilder dialogue and action that I really appreciate. There are, there are some very funny bits in this film. And that comes from a couple of things. Wilder saw himself as a satirist and he's satirising Hollywood and he's satirising old Hollywood and new Hollywood in, in this film as well. And also because English is in his first language, Wilder always had that focus on idiom and, and the way English is spoken by people in a particular um, environment. And he really did have a, a keen ear for dialogue and for the way people talked. Living in Hollywood, uh, 
he's an Austrian, German is his first language. And he really did kind of have that, he was tuned to the kind of randomness and, and the idiosyncrasies of the English language in a way that a native speaker often isn't. Uh, it's just, I really, really enjoyed revisiting this movie. I'm not going to do it again for a while because it's one of those movies that you really want to get fullness from every time you watch it. So I'm going to wait a few years before I watch it again. But I'm glad I've got a copy of it and I'm glad I rewatched it for the podcast. It uh, the, the acting is, is great. All four people, main people are great. Even someone like Jack Webb playing Artie, which is a very thankless role, playing the kind of jilted fiancé of, of a female character. Jack Webb we know from Dragnet and things like that where he plays a character who's kind of deadpan and serious. But in this one, he shows his chops as an actor. He's enthusiastic. He's fun. He's, he's the kind of guy you want to know. And, um, yeah, it, it kind of really does... The whole thing just works. Uh, the, right at the start, you see the titles, which are actually stenciled onto a gutter in Sunset Boulevard which is a kind of visual gag that Wilder did to show that they're going to show the kind of gutter side of Hollywood. Uh, it, it's just a joy of a film. If you haven't seen it in art before, please see it. If you haven't seen it for a while, it's time to revisit it. Uh, ignore the Andrew Lloyd Webber shit because that was just basically cash cow bullshit. But this original film, it works really well because the characters are characters we can relate to. Holden having that kind of weakness while being an incredibly beautiful man. He was um, somebody that plays well to a modern audience. Gloria Swanson's over the top and deeply ill. Um, Norma Desmond is fantastic. And this movie is its just one of the best films of the 1950s and it came right at the start of the decade. And I, I really like it a lot. But I'm going to take a break now. I'm going to get back. We're going to talk about a very different femme fatale, being Kathleen Turner in 1981's Body Heat. I can't go on with the scene. I'm too happy. Mr. DeMille, do you mind if I say a few words? Thank you. I just want to tell you all how happy I am to be back in the studio, making a picture again. You don't know how much I've missed all of you. And I promise you I'll never desert you again. Because after Salome, we'll make another picture and another picture. You see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. I just scratched the numbers on this, and there's less time that separates Sunset Boulevard from Body Heat than separates us from the time Body Heat came out as a film, which is a bit surprising and a bit shocking, but what the fuck? Time can be a stealthy bastard. But uh, this is Lawrence Kasdan's first film as a director. Of course, he made his um, cracked his nut, basically, with the Indiana Jones films. He um, wrote those along with Spielberg and Lucas and all those guys. And he decided he was going to have a go at a neo-noir. He wanted the movie, he said, to have the density of a novel, uh, as far as the characters were concerned. Though, it, it essentially, it doesn't really. But uh, the, the plot of this one is fairly simple. It does owe a bit to double indemnity, though they have, 
obviously updated the time scale to 1981 and the location to uh, the uh, Atlantic coast of Florida during a heat wave. Though the film was, oddly enough, filmed during a cold snap and uh, they had to make the um, actors put ice cubes in their mouth in order to stop having visible breath at times. So even though it does uh, give the appearance of being in a hot, sweaty, humid summer, something I just left, by the way, when I was in Sydney, it was actually filmed during a cold snap, which is kind of odd. But uh, the story is basically a an incompetent and not-too-bright lawyer called Ned Racine, played by William Hurt, meets up with Maddie Walker, the wife of a wealthy businessman, Edmund Walker, played by Richard Krenner. Maddie, of course, is played by Kathleen Turner. This is before Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile. This is her breakout role. In fact, it was her first film role. The plot parallels double indemnity in a lot of ways. Um, As the affair between Matty and Ned develops, they decide that they need to kill um, Edmund Walker, the Richard Croner character, so that Matty can inherit. Now, she signed a prenuptial agreement, but what they're planning to do, because, of course, Ned is a lawyer and an incompetent lawyer, they plan to do a new will for him in such a way that the um, new will will become um, legally unviable. And under Florida law, Matty then inherits all of the money anyway because where a will is seen to be legally non-viable, then all of the assets of the deceased person go to the spouse. So, yeah, they kind of develop a plan with that. And, of course, that also requires them to kill Edmund Walker. Uh, The plot to kill him is a little bit elaborate. He owns some beachfront property, which is a derelict. And the way they plan it is for him to appear to be burned and blown up in an unsuccessful arson attempt. Now, to do this, they need the help of an arsonist. And there's a nice little role in this film for somebody a little unexpected, but who does a pretty good job of it. And that's a young Mickey Rourke playing the young arsonist that Ned um, gets the incendiary device from. Now, his character's name is Teddy Lewis. And Mickey Rourke does really well. It's interesting to compare Mickey Rourke 2017 with Mickey Rourke 1981. All the plastic surgery, all of the, you know, being beaten around the face when he was making stupid attempts to be a professional boxer. Um, Yeah, time and plastic surgery have taken Mickey Rourke down a back alley and beaten the fuck out of him. While Rourke's a little bit mannered and a little bit um, James Dean in his acting, it still does pretty well. And there are other good actors in, of course. I like Richard Crenner as an actor. Originally, I saw him back in the day when I was a very young child in a quite a bad TV comedy series called The Real McCoys with Walter Brennan in it. He played the character of Walter Brennan's son. And, you know, a little bit of a doofus, a little bit of, you know, a kind of punchline kind of character in some ways. But um, Richard Crenna, of course, had previously been in, in TV series from as far back as the 1950s in stuff like Our Miss Brooks with Eve Arden. And um, yeah, he developed into a, a good character actor over time. Of course, people know him from the Rambo movies. 
But if you go back through the filmography of Richard Crenna, there's some interesting and good stuff there. He really was a good actor. And playing the alpha male businessman in this one, he gets a couple of scenes where he really does bring out his A-game. And he's got um, steel-rimmed glasses. But you can tell that he's a businessman that's not taking any shit and immediately sees through the character of Ned Racine and suspects that Ned's having an affair with his wife. So there's an uncomfortable scene there, which Krenner plays very well, where, by accident, Maddie, Ned, and Edmund meet at a restaurant, and uh, Edmund, uh, being the alpha male, decides to invite Ned to dinner with them. So that scene kind of fleshes out the character uh, a little bit more than Double Indemnity did with the character who gets killed by Phyllis and... um, Walter Neff in that film. So they, they do give a little more oxygen to the character uh, in an interesting way. He's not a likable character at all. He's a, a businessman. He's a rapacious businessman. But he's not the kind of guy who deserves to die. It's just that uh, he married the wrong woman in a way. Nonetheless, um, I like the fact that they gave that little bit of oxygen to the um, Edmund character, Edmund Walker character in this film, because um, Corinna would have been wasted otherwise. And there are a couple of other people too. There's a couple of friends of Ned's, one of whom is the county prosecutor, uh, Lowenstein, played by Ted Danson in an early, early role. Uh, Ted Danson, I think maybe that's a pun on his name, uh, his character dances. So it's Ted Danson. And uh, he kind of tap dances and um, he's, he's a prosecutor. He's a very good prosecutor as well. The other character is a character called Oscar, played by J.A. Preston. Uh, a fine character actor himself who turns up in various things. He died a number of years ago, but uh, if you look back through J.A. Preston's filmography, there's some good solid roles there. And he plays the um, local police detective who ends up investigating the murder of Edmund Walker. And he's good too. Uh, You know, J.A. Preston does a really nice job of it. They fit their roles really nicely, those two. Um, They both seem to the rapport and the chemistry between them and um, Ned Racine, played by William Hurt, is good. The, the actors play off each other really nicely in this, and uh, they both like Ned. Even as time goes on, they increasingly suspect he had something to do with the murder of Mr. Walker. Kathleen Turner's Maddie is an interesting character too, because um, she's hot, and not only, but mostly she's hot because her body temperature runs a couple of degrees above normal people. But she's sexy, she... Um, teases and allures Ned she plays him like a fish on a line she really does and knowing how the movie ends doesn't it detract from that watching the way that she ropes this guy into her con game and into her web is part of the joy of watching this movie uh the sex scenes in it are less graphic than I than I remember them being there's, there's nudity there's um a lot of laying on top of each other and stuff like that, but the nudity is less than I thought it was, and it's a lot less graphic than uh, Basic Instinct a couple of years later, which upped the ante on that kind of erotic thriller sex scene business. Uh, though Kathleen Turner, interesting role as Matty, because the sexuality and, and the arousal that she shows is slightly over the top. It plays over the top to the audience, but to somebody with Ned like Ned, the character of Ned, who basically is a bit of a coxman. He, he nails airline stewardesses and waitresses and nurses and people like that. So he's kind of playing you know, single women of working class and suddenly he meets a rich woman 
very, very sexy, who wants him and who basically expresses her need to fuck him in no uncertain terms. He's um, incredibly happy about that and uh, falls in love very easily because she's slightly overdoing that arousal, slightly overdoing that sexuality and that hotness in order to rope in this not very bright, not very perceptive lawyer whom she needs for her particular scam. And as the murder takes place and as the investigation takes place, increasingly Ned starts to suspect that Matty isn't the person she says she is. And this is where the femme fatale bit comes in. Uh, Matty Walker isn't the person that um, he thinks she is in name or in nature. She's a very complex kind of predator who um, has a long game she's running in order to be wealthy and independent. And the game dates back to school days. And that makes it really interesting. The reveal on that is nicely done by Kasdan. We, you know, we, we have the double indemnity thing. This kind of runs with some themes that were only slightly suggested about the Phyllis Dietrichson character in Double Indemnity. Um, Kasdan gives them a little more oxygen, a little more length, and kind of goes a little more into the kind of person the femme fatale in this kind of role actually is. And that makes it really interesting. The last scene is really good, and Ned's slow unravelling of what's going on really um, is the the capper for this one. This is the one that takes it a little longer and a little differently than the template for it being double indemnity. It really does um, take it in an interesting direction, and one that other films have kind of you know, referred to and referenced subsequent. In particular, The Last Seduction with Linda Fiorentino is um, a kind of daughter film, in a sense, to both Double Indemnity and Body Heat. And that's kind of interesting, too, the way it's part of the plot and, and some of the tropes are passed along film to film and different iterations of them play them differently. I, I find that really interesting as well. With Femme Fatales, there are only certain places you can go with them. And as time and society move on, you can play them differently. And that's very much what Body Heat does with this one. Now, I'm just going to play a little clip about um, Matty meeting Ned. It's at an outdoor concert, uh, a jazz concert, playing out uh, outdoors at night time. And she, wearing a white dress and not too much else, a white skirt and, and blouse, and not too much else, Matty walks past Ned. And Ned, getting a scent of it, follows her to a pier where they, they kind of stand and have a chat. You can stand there with me if you want, but you'll have to agree not to talk about the heat. I'm a married woman. Meaning what? Meaning I'm not looking for company. You should have said I'm a happily married woman. That's my business. What? How happy I am. And how happy is that? You're not too smart, are you? <laughs> I like that in a man. What else do you like? Lazy, ugly, horny? I got them all. You don't look lazy. <laughs> Tell me, does chat like this work with most women? Some, if they haven't been around much. I wondered. Thought maybe I was out of touch. I'm going to buy you a drink. I told you, I've got a husband. I'll buy him one, too. He's out of town. My favorite kind. We'll drink to him. Only comes up on weekends. <laughs> I'm liking him better all the time. 
Sorry about the quality of the clip. Um, it's the best one I can find at the moment. But, yeah, you, you kind of get that sharp dialogue that Kazdan does very well. And you get the sense that Ned thinks he's the player, but he's actually being played. And uh, as things go on, uh, the dialogue gets a little bit more interesting. And Maddie sinks the hook. I'm not going to spoil that part because you've got to watch that scene in its fullness. And there's a bit just before they part where, you know, Matty jerks the line and sinks the hook well into Ned Racine. And that, that's a bit of fun to watch as well. Kessner made a couple of interesting choices with this movie. First one was uh, getting Carol Littleton to edit the film because he wanted a female viewpoint on particularly the erotic scenes. He didn't want it to be a kind of you know, sausage party from that point of view, so he got Carol Littleton, who's worked with subsequently as well, to do the editing on the film, and it does work well. The erotic scenes play well, um, in some ways better than the ones in Basic Instinct from a certain viewpoint, in that um, the woman's sexual arousal is at least as important as the man's, and whereas Basic Instinct, being a Verhoeven film, it plays a little more to the man, but um, I didn't find that not quite so much in Body Heat. The other thing that I really like is the music, and the music's by John Barry, one of the great film composers of the 20th century. And I'm going to play uh, John Barry's theme to Body Heat at the end of the podcast as well. It really does um, cover things nicely, and it's a little bit different from the usual stuff we know from John Barry, the James Bond stuff, and um, stuff like out of Africa and um, Dances with Wolves and that kind of thing. I do like this one. It's a little, it sounds a little bit Jerry Goldsmithy, but very much with um, John Barry's signature style and flair. Uh, now, this isn't, uh, this movie was kind of successful at the time. It, it wasn't gangbusters, but there were a whole bunch of erotic thrillers coming out in the 80s. Um, of course, Basic Instinct that I've already mentioned. This one, um, nine and a half weeks, all of those kind of things. As I said when I was talking about Basic Instinct last time, this is a time when sex became dangerous because of the AIDS epidemic. And particularly illicit sex had that free song of danger and deadliness and threat that was part of the zeitgeist at the time. And knowing that and acknowledging that is definitely a part of understanding these erotic thrillers of the 1980s. The fact that um, sex was dangerous and, and continues to be dangerous, of course, to a certain extent. But at the time, it was perceived and, and publicly known as dangerous. Here in Australia, there was a ad campaign about um, safe sex, which was done as almost as a horror movie with the Grim Reaper at a bowling alley bowling people down with an enormous ball. Um, while a voiceover by a character actor called John Stanton talked about the threats of uh, AIDS, the AIDS virus. Actually, I'll find the clip of that and I'll put that in right here. At first, only gays and IV drug users were being killed by AIDS. But now we know every one of us could be devastated by it. The fact is, over 50,000 men, women and children now carry the AIDS virus. That in three years, nearly 2,000 of us will be dead.
but if not stopped, it could kill more Australians than World War II. But AIDS can be stopped and you can help stop it. If you have sex, have just one safe partner or always use condoms. Always. Needless to say, that was when Australia had a Conservative government. John Howard's coalition government came in in July 1987 and then produced that ad campaign, which was bombastic. Um, seemed to dismiss the fact that gay people were being killed by HIV and kind of upped the ante as far as um, the scare campaign was concerned. It's very much a Reds Under the Beds kind of scare campaign. A lot of people uh, complained about it at the time in the way that it was unnuanced and really um, you know, tried to scare people rather than educate them. And But that was the 1980s and that's how they played things then. Uh, even though a lot of people, of course, disagree with it. I think it was a, a more complex problem than the um, Conservatives in our Parliament thought it was. But that was a kind of zeitgeist of the 1980s. And, and although that aid campaign came out six years after Body Heat, that's the kind of shit that was going down. That, that was a kind of hysteria and the fear that uh, was going around at the moment. I remember I went to a science fiction convention in the 80s here in Australia, and there were American guests, and uh, there were some, you know, people came over from America who were gay, males, and Australian gay people wouldn't shake hands or touch them or hug them because they were scared of the AIDS virus. The education about how it was transmitted was ignored by a lot of people. There was, there was such a fear of it. Now, understandably, too, because it devastated so many communities in Australia and, and, of course, in America and England and Europe and everywhere else, really, and, and it continues to do so in Africa. But at the time, there was such an enormous hysteria about um, the HIV virus that permeated popular culture, including these kind of movies. And the erotic thriller came out as a direct result of that. It was directly in relation to the fact that, you know, sex became dangerous. But uh, just to wrap up Body Heat, a good, solid erotic thriller. I like the acting in it. I like dancing. I, I also like William Hurt. And I very much like Kathleen Turner in it. Um, and, yeah, and Mickey Rourke, of course, in that small but kind of pivotal role. It really does work as an erotic thriller, even though you know where it's going. Going along for the trip is a lot of fun. And just seeing the way that Matty plays Ned like a fish on the line is part of the fun of this film. Uh, I don't think it's as good as Double Indemnity. I don't think it's as good as Sunset Boulevard or even in some ways Basic Instinct. But it's on that continuum and it definitely does have a memorable, striking and powerful femme fatale in Matty Walker. Um, really nicely done stuff. But anyway, I'm going to wrap it up there. So uh, thank you again to the two Kerrys who I haven't put on the Patreon cast list yet i do apologize yet again for that but all of the rest of the patreon supporters the people who pay as little as a dollar a month to support the podcasts are definitely on the credit roll that i'm about to uh play for you anyway in the meantime before i talk to you next enjoy yourselves enjoy good movies enjoy bad movies enjoy pretty much anything except 50 shades of gray type movies because they shit uh um, there's a few things coming up this year that I'm really looking forward to in cinema, mostly to do with superhero stuff. 
But, uh, you know, just enjoy your films, and I'll be back next week with the Martian Drive-In podcast and in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. I'll catch you then. Thank you to all of the Patreon subscribers, and here are the credits in the style of movie credits to acknowledge and thank all of them. We have Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, our caterer, Grant, our Technicolor consultant, Claire, our script doctor, Gary, our prop master, Morris, our music director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, the foley artist, Alyssa, the location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, our donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve, our script doctor, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Carrie, our second script doctor, Richard, our set photographer, and our extras, Kathleen, Mark, and David. And let's not forget Steve Sullivan, our Director of Monster Effects, and Richard C., our Transportation Co-Captain. So thank you very much to all the subscribers, and you too can subscribe at patreon.com slash paleocinema.